Chapter 7 Separation and a Blessing Sermon 155, preached Thursday, the 12th of March, 1556, on Deuteronomy 28, verses 9 through 14. The Lord shall establish you as a holy people to himself, as he swore to you if you will keep the commandments of the Lord your God and walk in his ways. So the peoples of the earth shall see that the name of the Lord is called upon you, and they shall fear you. And the Lord shall make you abound in prosperity, in the fruit of your womb, and in the fruit of your beast, and in the fruit of your ground, in the land that the Lord swore to your fathers to give you. The Lord shall open for you his good treasure, the heavens, to give rain to your land in its season, and to bless all the work of your hand, and you shall lend to many nations, but you shall not borrow. And the Lord shall make you the head and not the tail, and you alone shall be above, and you shall not be underneath, if you will listen to the commandments of the Lord your God, which I charge you today, to keep and do them. And do not turn aside from any of the words that I command you today, to the right or to the left, to go after other gods to serve them. Continuing the matter we spoke about yesterday, Moses shows us the condition that results from God's choice of us when he takes us to be in his church, which condition is that we should be separated and set far off from the common curse of mankind. It is true that God's goodness extends over all men of the world, so that we see how all are fed and maintained by his liberality. But meanwhile, we also see how many miseries men are subject to. For this reason, it is good for us to be separated, and for God to watch over us and bear toward us a special love, as for his own children. For apart from all that, all our life would be confused, as we can see from the wretched infidels. Even though God bestows all kinds of blessings on them, yet they cannot profit by them, but always remain in doubt and with good reason, for what can they rest their hopes upon, seeing they are not certified of the love of God? How could they hold to him as their father? Therefore, it is a word well worth marking, where Moses says that God has separated us from all other nations of the world. It is certain that this word, holiness, see verse 9, indicates that the image of God should shine forth in us, and that we should serve him purely in a virtuous lifestyle. But yet from there he proceeds farther, as he does in this text, showing that God will give unto his people a certain mark to show that they are privileged above all others. Therefore, in beholding what the state of men is in this present life, let us learn to resort always to this promise, that God has not only created us after the common curse of the brood of all Adam's children, but that he has also chosen us to himself for his heritage. And let us not doubt at all, but that he watches over us and will make us to perceive that we are of his household and that he is near to us to aid us. Let us be well resolved in this. Election, Promise, Preeminence Moreover, Moses adds that all peoples of the earth shall see that the name of the Lord is called upon over you, and they shall be afraid. Verse 10. It is certain that the idolaters can vaunt themselves and claim the name of God, 
even while they fight against him and cast off all doctrine, insomuch that being as fierce as wild beasts, they can still look to be counted in the church. But Moses here takes the term call upon to mean naming. And indeed, he means that the people were truly and properly called by God after his own name, or named as his people. If we walk in the fear of our God, and frame our life after his calling, then it will be seen how it is not in vain that he calls himself our God, and vows us to be his people. Now, it is certain that this teaching presupposes that we have our recourse to God, as being under his protection. For it is said that a man is called upon, or named after the name of his prince, where he is his subject and under his leadership. Even so, it is said that the faithful have God's name called upon over them, signifying that they are his, and there they are all safe under his wings. And this cannot be unless we call upon God, and have our refuge in him in all our necessities. But where does such boldness come from, that we glory in this, that we belong to God more than others? For we know that the state of men is all alike by nature. Why then are we preferred before others who are descended from the self-same race? It comes through God's election, for it cannot begin with us. For where is a man who can advance himself to come nearer to God than others? What can any man bring within himself to deserve such preference? Nothing, obviously. Therefore, it is God who must make choice of us through his own mere goodness. And when he has declared himself to be our God, then we may also for our part be bold in all assurance and without doubt call upon his name. Now we see what is the effect of this sentence. Moses intends to declare the preeminence that God gives to those whom he has adopted as his children, which is that although they are mingled among men and encompassed with many miseries, yet they are preserved, being under his hand and protection. This is because he holds them, and avows that they are of his household, and not for any reason except his own good pleasure. Let us therefore courageously defy Satan, when we see that he practices all that he possibly can against us, and let us count ourselves assured against all the dangers of this world, seeing that God has done such favor as not to leave us to fortune, as the unbelievers imagine. And why? Because we are unto him a holy people. And what do we get this preeminence from? We have it because he has testified to us that he is our God. If we had not gotten this word from him, we should always be in perplexity. We should still doubt. We should still be questioning this or that, and our life should hang, as it were, by a thread, as we shall see in this chapter. But seeing that God has uttered his fatherly love to us, and it has pleased him to open his mouth to make us understand that he has given us familiar access to him. Seeing, I say, that we have such assurance, let us call upon him. Let us not doubt, but glory in this, that he is our Savior, and that since we are his, we cannot perish. All the same, let us beware that we do not call upon the name of God falsely, as all those who abuse it, making a mockery of him, and despising his majesty. If we claim the name of God, let it be because we are grounded upon his promises, and have received them through faith, 
and then let us call upon him. Let him be our refuge, and let us not give ourselves to fond bragging as they do who think it enough for them to bear the bare name of Christian. No, let us follow the call of our God, as Moses shows us here, saying, If you will keep the commandments of your God, as I do set them before you this day. Verse 9. For there is good reason for us to yield ourselves to God's direction, seeing he has so bound himself to us. And we should not only profess with our mouths that we are his people, but also show it by framing our whole lives agreeable to the same, and by keeping his commandments, make it apparent that we have received the grace he offers to us. For that is the true evidence thereof. The heathen shall fear. Now he says, moreover, that other people shall see that we are called by God's name, and they shall fear us. Verse 10. It is not enough that God promises to make us feel that we are safe in his keeping. But he also says that even the pagans, our mortal enemies, and the despisers of his majesty, shall be made to know the same. Now it is certain that the infidels do not know the arm of God in such a way as it ought to be known to us. They come far short of it. For though they see, they do not see. How then can it be possible for them to perceive that God has blessed us, that we live by his favor, and that we are nourished through his providence? After all, they are blockish, and do not recognize that anything comes to them from the hand of God. We see well how the infidels are fed and clothed. They enjoy the light of the sun. Indeed, they have an abundance of goods. But as for the worshipping and seeking of God, we hear of nothing of the sort among them. And if besides their despising of the benefits of their God, they have no understanding whence they come unto them, how should they then know that God has named us with his own name? They will not know it through any persuasion of mind or through any such true understanding of it as we ought to have. But Moses says that they shall have it proven to their faces. As, for example, we see the wicked grind their teeth when they behold the faithful prospering, and when they see that God upholds and keeps them. And how does this come about? Truly, they will be astonished at it, and they will not be able to think otherwise but that God does indeed favor their adversaries, not that they take it to heart or have a proper attitude about it, but in that they are at least confounded in their own selves. He says that they shall perceive that God's name is placed upon us, and that it shall put them in fear. Verse 10. For although they do not fear God, yet he bridles them secretly, insomuch that when they would practice anything against his people, they cannot do it, for they feel their courage broken. This is to be marveled at, that God sometimes permits the wicked to cast out the foam of their rage against us, and they devise whatever they can, and work their spite. But once they have done that, then it will appear that they are his underlings, and cannot withstand him. And why is this so? If God should permit the faithless to have their own way, it is certain that the world should not last three days, but that they would crush down all things before them. Therefore, it is necessary that he should restrain them with some secret bridle, and not permit their desires to have full scope, and we see it before our eyes. Why is it that we have not been swallowed up a hundred thousand times during these last twenty or thirty years? It is due only to God's defense, which consists not in signs that may be seen, 
but in his secret restraint of the wicked, as it were, in prison, notwithstanding all the evil that is in them. By reason of this, when they have devised anything, they wash away like water, and all their thoughts vanish, and they lie as with their arms broken. And though they undertake great things, yet they cannot attain to their purposes. And so you see what Moses meant in saying that the wicked, in that they are our enemies, shall perceive that the name of God is placed upon us, and thereby be stricken in fear. We see from this that there is no fortress or defense like having recourse to our God. As long as he takes the burden upon himself to save us, let us boldly trust that we stand in safety, yea, although the wicked conspire against us, and lie in wait and watch for us, yet shall we be as an invincible fortress, since we can call upon the name of our God and be thoroughly assured in ourselves that he avows us to be his people, and we have a good warrant of this if we do not break our faith that we on our parts have plighted to him. But we must feel the protection of God in a way other than the wicked feel it. That is to say, in hearing his word, we must embrace the grace that is presented to us and rest wholly upon it. After that manner must we ascertain that the name of God is put upon us. Repeated Assurances of Blessing Now Moses repeats again what he has said concerning the fruit of the womb, of cattle, and of the earth. Verse 11 Surely it would have been sufficient to have promised once that all bodily blessings come from God. But on the one hand we see the mistrust that is in men, how, when God speaks to them, they ceaselessly argue and reply, saying, Yes, but can I be sure of it? And therefore, to give us better resolve, God confirms the matter he had previously spoken of. Again, we see our unthankfulness to be such that we attribute things to fortune, or to our own skill and craft, which are actually done for us by God. Therefore, he calls us to himself, and shows that it is he who does it. And on the other hand, he would have us to understand that if we intend to prosper in all points, we must hearken to him and obey him. For all men, yea, even the most wicked in the world, desire to have issues of their own bodies, increase of cattle, and great revenues. But what? In the meanwhile, we despise God, the author of all goodness, and seem as though we labored purposefully to thrust his hand far from us which is as much as if I should ask a man for an alm, and then reach up and box his ear, or as if he should come to my aid, and I should spit in his face. Even so deal we with our God. God, therefore, perceiving such malice in us, and that we cannot simply be taught but stop our ears against what he says, repeats the same things again that he had spoken to us before. He warns us that if we lack anything, we must lay the blame for it on our sins and not on him. And why? Because he is ready, on his part, to bless us as much in the issue of our bodies as in revenue of land and in cattle. And he is liberal and rich enough for us. Neither will he be stingy towards us regarding the blessings that are in his possession. Let us therefore acknowledge that the fault lies with us when he withdraws his benefits and does not give them to us as much as we wish. Rain from heaven. Moreover, it is noteworthy that he says that God shall open his good treasure, namely the heavens, and give us rain, 
that the earth may bring forth food. Verse 12. Here Moses sets out the order of nature that we see with our eyes, that we might the better understand that God is our Father and Nourisher, and that although the sustenance whereon we feed is gathered from earth, yet it is God alone who sends all things. How so? The earth indeed has nature given to it, to bring forth fruit, but if it should continue dry, what would come of it? We see that unless there fall both rain and dew, the earth would crack open as though it would cry out that it is thirsty, and it dries up for want of moisture. And therefore David, intending to utter his earnest desire of God's grace, uses this similitude, saying, Lord, I am unto you as a dry ground. Psalm 143.6 We see before our eyes how the earth becomes barren and parched for want of moisture, and finally has neither strength nor substance. Had it so pleased God, could he not have given the earth the ability to have substance enough by itself? For as we read in Genesis 2.6, there was not such rain in the beginning as we have in these days, but God caused a certain vapor to rise up to moisten the earth. Cannot he do the same now, or else arrange matters so that the earth should have some kind of moisture proceeding from underneath? And indeed, where does rain come from? If you ask the philosophers, they will say that rain comes from the vapors that ascend out of the earth, which being drawn up into the air are sent down again upon the earth. Thus then, after the opinion of the philosophers, the vapors do ascend. But now, How did it come to pass that God does not make the heavens yield rain, except it come first out of the earth? Or why not let the earth retain the moisture it has, so that it may always have strength and substance of itself? What is the cause of this rising up of the vapors, that when the earth has yielded them forth, they are held up in the air as intense as it is mentioned in the psalm? Psalm 18.11 What is the reason for all this? It is because he sees us to be so stupid and idiotic, that although he shows us with his finger that it is at his hand that we receive all goodness, yet he intends to make us to perceive it in a more visible manner. And this is the reason also why he says that he will respond to the heavens, and the heavens will respond to the earth, and the earth will respond to the grain, and to all the seeds that are committed to it. Hosea 2.21 When the husbandman sows his grain well, he lays it up as it were in prison, and it seems to be at the mercy of the earth. The earth then must conceive the grain, nourish it, and make it to spring up, and in the same way give it substance. But does the earth hear the grain? No, it is deaf. That is to say, it has no power to make it prosper unless it is heard by others. And how is that? The earth, as I have said, looks up to heaven, and after a fashion opens her mouth, for her mouth cleaves open when it feels extreme heat, and is not watered as it wishes. The heaven then must answer the earth. The heaven? What can it do? Can the heaven give water? It has none to give except God draw it up into it by his secret power. Indeed, we shall see hereafter how God threatens to give a heaven of brass. It is needful then that God hear the heaven, and that we repair hither. So then, as often as it rains, we must understand that God opens his treasures, which are otherwise shut up. God, as I have said, 
could even without rain or dew cause the earth to bring forth fruit, but he uses such means as he knows to be convenient for our dullness, and he does so for the purpose of giving us less excuse. If we are unthankful to him and close our eyes against so apparent a matter, we should be so much the more blameworthy at the last day, and be certain to yield an account for our willfulness in refusing to know the things that ought to be thoroughly known by us. Thus you see what we have to bear in mind. St. Paul, speaking of the ignorance that prevailed in the old world before the gospel was preached, Acts 14.16, says that all people went astray like brute beasts. And why? Because that doctrine was not yet taught, which is the true light to show us the way of saving health, as we shall see in the thirtieth chapter. Notwithstanding, he adds that God nevertheless did not leave himself without witness, Acts 14.17. And his statement, he did not leave himself without witness, is as if he had further said, and how so, in that he has sent rain upon the earth in due time and season, has he also sent fair weather? These are God's witnesses, which declare that just as he has created the world, even so he upholds and preserves it. These are the witnesses that speak with a loud and clear voice, saying that we must look to God for all the nourishments that he gives us. This is why I said that we should mark well this saying that God shall open his treasures, Deuteronomy 28.12. For although we see what great riches God has set in this world, what various sorts of beasts, what herbs, what trees, and what a number of all other kinds of things, yet all these things should decay and die, if God did not send us daily from heaven the things that are requisite for the preservation of this life. Could we abide three days without the light of the Savior? If God did not give natural power to every seed, what would happen? We should rapidly perish. And if nothing else were involved except what I have been speaking about concerning the earth, it would soon dry up. These, therefore, are the good treasures that God bestows upon us. And when it is His will to show Himself a Father to us, He lays the heaven before us that we might see it there. It is just as if God should lift us up by the chin and say, Poor creatures, when you seek food, you look to make sure you have planted enough seeds in the ground. Indeed, that is something you must look to, but you must first of all go hither and lift up your eyes to me. Even nature itself compels you to do so, for you know that without rain the earth cannot prosper. Therefore, do not forget the things that I show you day by day, which you have learned by experience. This is the good treasure Moses is speaking of, and he expressly adds, the heaven. Why? Because if he had said, God shall show his bounty from above and from beneath, surely that ought to have been enough for us. But because of our infirmity, we see how God is careful to express the matter more plainly, so that he also shows that we must come to him and look up to the heavens because he calls us there and has ordered matters such that he will have us to think ourselves to be barren and starving people, except he pour his goodness upon us from above. Now, having spoken of this good treasure, he says, He shall give you rain in due time, and shall bless the work or labor of your hands. By speaking of the due season, he shows to us that God's giving rain to us in due time proceeds from an especial care. After all, Sometimes rain is very harmful, 
as we see before our eyes. From this, we must conclude that if God did not have the power and skill to restrain the rain, the fruits of the earth and also the bodies of the men should rot. What does the rain do, if left to itself? It engenders only rottenness. On the other side, we see the rain refreshes in season and gives strength to the ground, from which we see that it is the treasure of God giving us sustenance. And why is that? Because God knows it is good for us that he cause it to rain. Therefore, when we see it rain out of season, let us mark how God shows us that it is very necessary for us that he watch over us, and that no drop of rain fall without his commandment, according to what we have previously seen, which is that he holds the water above as it were in tents. The clouds are huge tents, Psalm 18.11. The prophet would have us to consider that it requires a most wonderful power to shut the rain up there, for otherwise we should be drowned out of hand, or at least we should be rotted by it, as I mentioned. And here, by the way, we are admonished, as we shall note hereafter, to consider our sins and trespasses, and to think that when God gives us extraordinary rains, they are as punishments for our offenses. Moreover, when the rain comes in season, let us acknowledge that there does not fall one drop but by God's appointment, assuring ourselves that it is necessary for us. That is the reason why Moses expressly adds this particular saying. The Gift of Labor Next he says that God shall bless the labor of our hands, verse 12. This is to make us understand, as he has already pointed out before, that it is not our own labor and travail that feeds us, as we have seen in the 8th chapter, that is Deuteronomy 8.17, where he says, When you are come into the land that God gives you, remember that during forty years you were fed with manna that fell from heaven, so that you should not say, It is my own labor that sustains me. Let us therefore learn by these texts that when we have travailed, and bestowed our labor to till the earth, and have considered everything that is requisite, yet nevertheless we must lift up our eyes and not stand in our own conceit so as to say, I have done this. It is done by my own labor and wisdom. Let us rather acknowledge that it is God's doing to give increase, and that without Him all our labor is in vain, so that even if we were breaking our arms and legs by engaging in back-breaking labor, yet, instead of going forward, we should be falling backward. The sum of the matter is that we should labor in all lowliness, and when we have travailed for our living, we should understand that it is not in us to give the success, but that God must wholly guide it and give it good issue, not only regarding the vegetation of the earth, but also regarding all things in general. So then, when a man applies himself to any kind of labor, let him not go about it presumptuously, but let him call upon God to help him, saying, Lord, it is your pleasure that I should take pains. Well, I am doing so. But I know that I shall not prevail unless you guide me, and unless you give me good success. Through your mere grace and goodness, let my labor prosper. This is the thing we are admonished concerning in this text. Let us not then think that man's care and skill, or his travail and endeavor, can make the ground fertile. But remember that the blessing of God rules all. All the same, this puts us in mind of our duty, for God will help us when we are not idle. 
We are not made of wooden logs, after all. Men must, I say, employ themselves when God promises them his blessing. These two points go together, namely, that the Lord will bless us, and yet nevertheless that he will have us also to labor. It is certain that God could feed us if our arms were broken, and he could make us live without any care and without having to regard the maintenance of our own households. God, I say, could give us food free of cost, but it is his pleasure to exercise us with care and travail, and that every man, according to his vocation, should apply himself to what he sees fitting for him. I say that God's matching of his blessings with our labor is to show that he will not have us to be sluggards, every man sitting on his own tail, and not tilling the ground or occupying himself with any other trade, and taking the bridle in our teeth. Rather, we should do this honor to God, saying, Lord, although we have done what we can, yet it is nothing unless your gracious goodness rule it. But men do not use this teaching properly, for we see how men are given to darkening the grace of God under pretense that they can do something for themselves. That is how they think of themselves. And this demonic arrogance pertains not only to matters concerning the nourishment of our bodies, but also to the area of personal salvation. Is not this the foundation of the notion of free will? God requires men to study and labor to do good, to withstand temptation, to have such a fervent zeal as to give themselves wholly unto him and to forsake themselves. And since God requires all these things, it seems that we can do them in our own power. Indeed, we do not consider that God, for all his commanding, also said that he works by his Holy Spirit, so that he writes his laws in our hearts and engraves them in our minds, and causes us to walk according as he commands. Oh, this is very true, and yet we also must do our endeavor. And where does that endeavor come from? These wretches do not understand that it is God who drives us forward and stirs us up, and that all the endeavoring wherewith men endeavor comes from their being instruments of the Holy Spirit. Now then, seeing that under this pretense of working we seek nothing other than to darken the grace of God, so much the more diligently we ought to note this doctrine, by which God stirs us up and would have us to work, and yet shows us withal that we cannot profit unless he gives us good success. Truly there is a great difference between his handiwork and what the faithful do in endeavoring to live well. For as I have said, men are created to labor by nature, but we are so wicked and rebellious that instead of obeying God, we are born to nothing but to offend God until he has reformed us and made us new creatures. So then... God not only blesses our labor when we endeavor to serve Him through the grace of His Holy Spirit, but also we labor only through His power, according as He guides and governs us. This is the sum of what we have to bear in mind concerning this text. The Promise of Dominion Now it is also said that God shall make them the head and not the tail, verse 13. This means that those who endeavor to serve him shall be set above and not beneath. This is, as it were, the height of all prosperity. Now surely it was necessary, as was treated of yesterday, that the old fathers under the law should have more promises concerning this transitory life than we have, for they did not have such an opening of the heavenly life as is given us in the gospel. Therefore it was God's will to draw them after that fashion like little children. 
For since an infant is not of capacity to understand the goodness of his father, therefore to encourage him the father will say to him, I shall give you a nice new cap, or a gay new coat. This is agreeable to the capacity of the child. And because his heart is tender, such talk is used in dealing with him. All the same, the father's intention is to lead him on farther. Even so did God deal with the old fathers. He set forth his benefits that they should enjoy in this world, intending to draw them from hence to a higher hope, namely, to the hope of the heavenly heritage. And so, the Jews were made like a head when the kingdom flourished among them, when they overcame their enemies, and when God showed himself to fight for them. Nowadays we must not look to have either kingdoms or principalities as they had, nor do we have in like manner the temporal kingdom of David. It is sufficient for us that Jesus Christ is given us, and that we reign with him, and that he is our king, who causes us to flourish under his government. I say, it ought to suffice us that we are a royal priesthood under our head, who is the Son of God. Nevertheless, our Lord has made a promise to all the faithful, that if they walk in his obedience, they shall not be oppressed by the tyranny of men, but shall be sustained in liberty, which is also a blessing, as much as any that can be desired in this world. Knowing, therefore, that this is a special gift of God, as it is here showed, let us learn to serve him, and to give him the whole authority over us, that by governing us we may be set free from bondage to men. We shall see hereafter in this present chapter in Deuteronomy 28.17 how he threatens them that will neither fear him nor shrink at his terribleness, according as it is said in the Psalm 105.38. God must lay the fear of men upon all them that will not fear him and be his willing subjects. Let us mark, therefore, that when we yield to the reigning of God over us, we shall be maintained by him in such a fashion that men will not be able to oppress us. And if at any time the wicked have their sway, and seem to set their feet as it were upon our throats, let us understand that God is bringing us low because we have offended him, and because we have not rendered to him the praise that belong to him, and that he chastises us according to our deserts. But we must always come back to this point, that if we do not cast off God, we shall be received by him in such a way that he will be to us as an army, and will make us able to walk with our heads upright, as it is said in the third psalm, verse 3. So then, this blessing served not only for the fathers that lived under the law, but it continues also into the end of the world. Primacy of Obedience And we can see that the promise is not empty when we continue reading. Keep the commandment I set before you this day, says Moses, that you swerve neither to the left nor to the right to go after strange gods and to worship them. Verse 14. We see how God continually reminds us of obedience to his word, so that we should serve him, though not in that hypocrisy to which we are so much inclined. Let us remember, therefore, this lesson that to worship our God sincerely, we must evermore begin by hearkening to his voice and by giving ear to what he commands us. For if every man goes after his own way, we shall wonder. We may well run, but we shall never be a whit nearer to the right way, but rather farther away from it. And God wills to be not only heard, but also obeyed by all men without exception, 
and without adding anything to his word or subtracting anything from it. And this is expressly said, because men dare to be so bold as to bring in their new manners of serving God, to do what they suppose to be good. Contrarywise, let us understand that when God has once showed what he will have us to do, we must simply hold ourselves there, without presuming to add thereto or to diminish therefrom by any means. But above all things, he would have us to acknowledge him to be our God. For the true reason that men stray, and altogether vanish into so many superstitions and idolatries, is that they know not what they ought to worship. We have, therefore, greatly profited from the gospel, from the law, and from the prophets, when we have the skill to say, This is the God who showed himself to Abraham, the God who showed himself by Moses, the God who lastly showed himself fully in the person of his only Son, and the same is he who is our God. As it is also said in the prophet Isaiah, in Isaiah 25.9, where he speaks of the manifestation of our Lord Jesus Christ, Lo, this is he, lo, there is our God. Then let us have a settled faith, that we not be rovers, let us not be like little children, or like wavering reeds that are carried every which way, but let our faith be well grounded by taking root in our Lord Jesus Christ. Prayer Now let us fall down before the majesty of our good God with acknowledgement of our sins, beseeching him to teach us true repentance, so that we may bewail them and be heartily sorry for our corruption, to withdraw us from them more and more, and therein to reform us. And forasmuch as we are not only frail but also altogether rebellious, that it may please him to bring us home again to him, and to prop up our weakness with his strength, so that we may overcome all the hindrances that serve to turn us from him, and that we may with perfect constancy go on to the mark to which he has called us, until we attain to the perfection of all righteousness. And that in the meanwhile it may please him to uphold us in such a manner that even if we fail, yet he will cease not to take us for his children and make us to understand more and more that he confirms us in the trust of our salvation. That it may please him to grant this grace not only to us, but also to all people and nations of the earth, etc. Amen.